Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to all our listeners. Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com. That's where you go. Stay there, look around a bit, do a search, and come back and listen to the rest of our podcast. Mark, of. I'm a bit sad. I know the title of our podcast this week is Sad Sack, and we will see why that is you, very appropriate it, it, It's, it's shortly, just awful but... the way that you say the word sack. It has like a sharpness at the end um, that, that makes me feel vaguely yes. uncomfortable. <laughs> well, I'll just say sad. I won't say anything else. I recently updated one of my passports, and yes, I have multiple passports. Just call me, um, just call me. Um, what's his name? Um, what's the dude who um, the, the 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 film about um, the guy who has multiple passports? You know, the action hero dude. Um, I'll, I'll remember it shortly. Um, Jason Bourne. You know, just oh, call I me thought Jason wasn't Bourne. wasn't um, wasn't there um, that, uh, that another film about a guy who. Pretended to be an airline pilot. What was that one? Oh, now I've got to try and one. think of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Bourne trilogy, or how many they've made, they probably made four or five of them now, haven't they? Yes. So I renewed one of my passports, and I had to send. Well, it's actually good and bad because they, it was. Um, I have an Australian passport, and I also have been born here, obviously, and a British passport with my heritage, and I managed to score a dual citizenship, and I've kept up that passport, which made it very useful, Mark, for entering certain countries with my British passport, although it gets a little bit tricky because I have been on some overseas trips when I've taken both passports and arriving at one country and trying to think which passport should I use, um, arriving or depart in a particular country, and they look at my passport and say, hang on, how the hell did you get here? Um, because I can see you left... Um, you left um, Indonesia and now you've arrived in in Venice and um, somehow um, we don't know how you got in, in um, between the two. And um, so it's a little bit um, of explaining to do sometimes and I just pull out the other passport and they and then they do a strip search on me usually <laughs> after that. So, um, so, yes, so renewing my <laughs> – we won't go there – renewing my British passport, Mark, um, so – um, the good news is these days for the British passport, um, for the photo, they let you take your own photo. So I had my lovely Jane, my eldest daughter, take a photo of me with her little Instagram filter on it, I think, um, in our house. And you upload that photo online and that's what the photo they use um, for the passport. I did have to post the old passport in because it was due to expire in about six months and... I needed to make sure that um, it was valid in case I used it when I head overseas um, shortly. And um, so I paste that off. And I, the bad news there is it used to be you could send the passport to the local, the head um, embassy here in Australia, in Canberra, in the ACT. Um, but now you have to, all the British passports are renewed. It 
the I think you have to send them to Liverpool or somewhere in the UK. So I had to post the old passport there, and um, yeah, I got the passport back. Um, it was actually very quick. It was only about two weeks or so. Um, and I, I turned to my wife Annie and I said, "They sent me the wrong passport. There's an old man in it." <laughs> because you know what passport photos are like. So yeah, I'm a tad sad about that, Mark. So um, and then um, the tables were turned because Annie had to renew her one and only Australian passport and um, because we're heading over on a overseas on a trip shortly and it was due to expire and she sent it in and had the photo taken at the local post office and um, she was quite depressed and saying, look, I'm, I'm just looking really old here. And I tried to be positive and I said, look, don't worry about it. You know, your passport are in you in 10 years and you'll look at this photo and think, gee, I look so young. Um, and I, I don't think it, it did go down did, too well. Uh, couldn't you it. run an Instagram filter over it before you send it off? Yeah, I should have. I should have. Um, certainly needed it for mine, that's for sure. So, yes, so that's what I've been up to, um, renewing passports. So that's nothing too exciting. But, um, yeah, um, I'm always a bit sad when you renew the passport, not just because of the fact you I think every year is 10 years um, as you get older, but um, you lose the all the stamps. You know, the old passport, they give, yeah, they give it back to you. They chop it up or they chop the corner off or whatever, depending on which country you get them done, done in. Um, and, yeah, you have all those lovely little stamps that people randomly put on random pages, or I think it's random. There's obviously some sort of No, it definitely no. is. No system. I reckon there's some secret code to it, Mark. Um, you know, I mean, the, the place I loved when I and, and I love visiting there is when, and you were obviously there because we were there together in, is Venice, Mark. I don't know what it was like when you arrived at the at, in Italy. And I, my, I arrived via, um, well, direct, it was via Dubai or somewhere like that or, or Qatar. Um, so I flew from Melbourne, Australia to Qatar in the um, um, Arab um, states and then flew, transited there for a couple of hours and then flew into Venice. So my my landing in Italy was actually in Venice and um, gee, they were pretty surly, the customs guy who got me there and they um, I lined up and um, they seemed to take ages and there wasn't many people going through the, the customs there and then... Um, it was my turn. The pe- person in front of me had gone, you know, you stand at the red line or whatever and the next, um, and I was waiting and the person before me had gone through and he was just fiddling and carrying on and wasn't, didn't even um, look up at me and I, I was waiting, waiting and he just had me stood there for about five minutes and then he looked up and sort of gave me a come hither, you know, well, maybe not come hither, <laughs> I've come over. <laughs> um, and um, it was very surly, you know, and he looked up and down and looked at my passport and stamped it on a random page and I was in. Um, and luckily enough, I didn't get body searched on that particular trip, Mark. Um, how did you find the customs in, in Venice? Um, it, I must have uh, just, you must have just got that officer on a particularly bad day because they were pretty uh they were pretty kind and generous to me they um they you know then it would be it wouldn't be a pleasant job to um to have to deal with all these people in a rush and yeah no it was fine I think it was just and you, yeah, absolutely. And you just gave them your typical puppy dog look, and they let you straight through. I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. unbelievable. Yes, um, unbelievable. So yes, so there we go. So nothing about veterinary science there, Mark. But um, I'm going to jump into a news story because again, this week we don't have a review, and that's a good news story, Mark. And it, it is about the future of West Virginia's rare flying squirrel, and it's looking good. 
And um, I like this one because there's some fantastic um, habitat pictures there, Mark. I don't know whether you've looked at this, but it's about the Virginia Northern Flying Squirrel, which is also commonly known as the West Virginia Northern Flying Squirrel, and it was listed as endangered in 1985. And through restoration efforts, the species has rebounded. And by, I think, in 2013, according to the article, it joined an exclusive group of success stories. And I know I'm a bit pessimistic about um, recovery program programs with species, but this one has been good. So it's been taken off the endangered list. And um, not surprisingly, Mark, it's all due to saving the habitat, habitat as we always bang on about a lot, don't we, Mark? Um, and it's the Red Spruce Northern Hardwood Forest, um, which... Um, Looks pretty amazing. I've never been there, but um, it consists of lots of fir and beech and spruce trees and black cherry and hemlock and red maple, according to the article. Gee, they make some good. I could make some good furniture out of that, Mark. Um, thinking about some of the black cherry is pretty damn good to to work with. So. Um, yeah, maybe. Hmm, that's interesting. Sort yeah. of explains why <laughs> yes. the, the, the squirrel got into trouble. Yes, that's right. Yes, so the squirrel um, was taken off the endangered list in 2013 because they did a recovery program and protected the forest and they restored the forest and they managed to get that particular hardwood forest back to more than 173,000 acres, which is which is fantastic. Um, and the five years after the 2003 proclamation that it was off the endangered list, um, more than 7,455 acres of the habitat has been created specifically um, that has been restored. So that's fantastic. So, yeah, it's a good news report, Mark, and... Um, you know, it just the other great thing about that news story was, um, and it, it does show that these, um, what do they call them, the species, the 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 um, major species that everyone pays attention to, but there are other species that have benefited as well. The cheat mountain salamander, um, it's, as long as those iconic species sort of continue to um, get people to pay attention to habitat, there's a whole bunch of innocuous cryptic species that um, benefit from from that as well and uh, bloody hell those photos of the the uh, forests they look like they'd just be f nice to be and they soothing um uh lovely uh um uh spruces and the snow on some of them yeah i i can't understand why anyone would want to chop them down and turn them into furniture yes <laughs> well let me show you um a beautiful um um little um side table mark um, at some stage <laughs> next time you come over um and i noticed that in that forest they have well um there's a picture of truffles there too mark so they um, have um, a tr little truffle industry in that forest as well so no that's my good news story mark what have you got well, mine is a little bit of a worrying one, not as worrying as usual, um, but um, you know how I very often talk about birds. This, and one of my other favourite animals are the tardigrades, the um, uh, the water bears, the um, uh, what are they, moss piglets. There's a bunch of common names for them, um, but they're um, just verging on microscopic, usually uh, less than a millimetre long. They live in um, uh, moist environments, hence the water or moss 
adjective used to describe them. And they occur, I didn't realise they occur in marine environments. I thought they were predominantly freshwater. And they have the reputation for being um, one of the living things that um, ended up on the moon at some point. Um, and so there's been talk about their ability to survive extremes of... Um, of uh, 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 absence of water and high temperatures and low temperatures. They slip into a suspended state of animation and um, these desiccated tardigrades, uh, uh, you know, um, seem to, you know, there's talk of them being the only living thing that could survive a whole bunch of catastrophes. But this report is a bit of a downer because um, some specific species of tardigrades that were harvested from... Um, the gutters of houses in Denmark um, were tested for their ability to survive temperatures. And while other species of tardigrades, you know, will will do pretty well even at um, temperatures way up in the 60s, 70s and 80s, um, these guys uh, got into trouble in the... Um, in the, the high 30s. Um, and so it sort of puts a bit of a damper on their, um, their, you know, invincible nature. But I thought when I read this one, Brendan, that collecting tardigrades from the gutters of roofs in Denmark, surely they're going to be tardigrades that are pretty well adapted to low temperatures rather than high temperatures. And it might not have been the best example of the uh, third. Uh, um, 1,300 species um, to test, you know, they've sort of picked, I don't know, one of them that's likely to not be able to cope with that, I would have thought. Yes. Um, it, it is, um, there are some species that are reported to tolerate temperatures as high as 151 degrees, um, uh, but the exposure time was only like half an hour. Um, but, um, yeah, these guys uh, only just... Slightly warmer than body temperature, and they were out of the game. Now, there's tens of thousands of, or thirteen hundred approximately yeah. tardigrade species, according to that article. So, what was the species that they dealt with, um, <laughs> in, and what, where was the place, and who was the um, researcher? Mark, do you want to expand a little bit? I, I, I just can't find those on my um, on my <laughs> iPad at the moment, Brendan. Ram, Ramazotius variornatus is the tardigrade species. Um, it was in Nifa in Denmark, and uh, Ricardo Neves was the um, postdoc. And his co-researcher. <laughs> Can't seem to find that one. Naja, Naja. Yes. Um, they're pretty amazing animals, aren't they? And, and we must thank again our, our research officer, um, Doug, um, who sent us that particular article from Science Daily. And as usual, we will link to all our articles at vetgurus.com. So head over there now. Um, well, stop driving, pull over on the side of the road because most of our listeners like to listen to our podcast to and from work, Mark, although there's a few who listen to yeah. it as they go into sleep, and I, I don't quite understand that. Do you understand that, Mark? I could probably see <laughs> a way that our mellifluous tones droning on and on could be a cure for some <coughs> well, rare the, forms of insomnia. Well, the challenge today, Mark, is this story. Uh, our main topic is air sac rupture in birds and 
you need to keep our listeners awake. So even well, those who listen to us asleep or, or listen to well, they probably do listen to us asleep as they go into sleep or use us as a method of getting to sleep, you need to keep them awake today. That's a challenge, Mark. So do you want to talk about ASAC rupture in our avian species? I do, Brendan, and I want to talk about it because obviously I've had – it does seem to be like – something that jumps into my head when I've had a few cases um, and then I think, oh, this would be a good one to talk to Brendan about. And we have had a few recently. Um, And these are really spectacular cases because the um, birds, and if you do, if any of our listeners work in practices where they see birds, they will inevitably, if they haven't already, they will inevitably see these cases. Um, The birds come in uh, looking like a feathered Michelin man. They blow up with uh, air under their skin. Um, Subcutaneous emphysema arises from the rupture of the air sacs. Um, And they're spectacular cases. The interesting thing I find about them is that when we have appointments made for these sort of uh, um, bubble-wrapped birds, um, we... um, we, we, people regularly book an appointment thinking they're going to have to euthanise the birds because it's such a dramatic and visually stunning thing for a client to see. The birds look weird. Um, and so the assumption is that it is something that's not going to be able to be fixed and we're going to have to euthanise the bird. But this is obviously not the case, Brendan. We can do quite a lot with these guys. It is a good opportunity for me just to point out for those of our listeners who might not see uh, pelicans or gannets or other diving birds, boobies, um, all these species have normal subcutaneous emphysema. Um, so it is just being worth being aware when you first lay your hands on a big pelican um, you rub your hands over that uh, bird. It's obviously, sick because it's been brought to the. It's it's been collected by a member of the public and brought to a vet. Um, and it can be disconcerting to feel those birds and and sense the extensive subcutaneous emphysema, which is normal and protects them on their um, their dramatically powerful dives into the ocean. It provides a cushion. Um, and protects them from damage as they smash into the water to catch fish. But what we're talking about today is not that situation. It's pathological subcutaneous emphysema that we often see in our parrots. Okay. So you say you see a fair few of these roughly. You know, how often would it be that you see them, Mark? You know, once a week, once a month, two a month, ten a month? (laughs) Um, we would probably be seeing i estimate our yeah probably something like a dozen a year once a month maybe once every couple of weeks that would be sort of the numbers um they are pretty frequent cases um and they do stick out in our minds because they are so uh spectacular and they strike a bit of a chord with the clients who can you know with many of the diseases that birds get the clients won't even realise they're sick, but this is one where it's obvious something is wrong. Yes. Okay. So, well, let's jump into um, clinical examination of them. So it sounds like it's pretty obvious with most, if not all, of the mark. Do you see anywhere there's only a slight, a slightly puffy bird there, or not? Or they're usually very dramatic. Well, the main ones that occur are the the, uh, the rupture of the cervicocephalic air sac at the base of the neck, and those ones really are usually quite 
uh, obvious. They've got a, at least a big puffy neck um, and quite often that extends like all over the bird. But there are a number of other locations, uh, periocularly, um, between the ribs underneath the, um, underneath the wings. Um, there's a couple of other locations where they will be relatively less, you know, less um, dramatic uh, uh, areas of subcutaneous emphysema. Um, so, but no, the most common ones we see those um, uh, cervicocephalic air sac ruptures. They're really uh, very apparent, and you you uh, just you can see they look like it. You pretty much handle the birds. You can feel they've got a gigantic bubble of air underneath. The only difficult thing about diagnosing them is that occasionally, particularly very young birds. Uh, recently fledged or even nestling birds will develop aerophasia and so they can get quite a lot of air in the crop and get a hyperinflated crop um, and it can be a little bit difficult to distinguish between those the usual way that I find works well for me is a crop needle um, that you can reasonably confidently place a crop needle in the crop and then see it through the crop wall when there's um when there's aerophasia, um, those birds that uh, um, have subcutaneous emphysema associated with air sac rupture, you will not be able to see that um, that uh, air, uh, the crop needle poking out into the, the gas under the skin. Okay, so does that, that one with the aerophagia in the crop, um, does that deflate or you have to actively deflate that, that um, air from the crop? That Well, it... it generally doesn't deflate of its quickly of its own accord because the birds, particularly those young birds, will sit with that S-shaped neck and it provides a pretty good seal. So once they've swallowed the air, it'll sit there for quite a while. But obviously, too, once you stick the air, once you stick the crop needle in, you can aspirate the air and it will go down. Okay. So... What's the key points here, Mark? I mean, how? So we want to initially examine that bird and differentiate those those bits of air that are in the bird, don't we? Um, for no, what? How many cause, cause, general causes have you spoken about there? So the subcutaneous emphysema, there's the air sac rupture and that um, crop aerophage. Are they the three ones that would cover most of those problems? Well, I'd, I would signs. say that the air sac rupture leads to subcutaneous emphysema. The em, subcutaneous emphysema is the clinical sign you can see. Air sac rupture is the pathology that leads to it. Um, and there are a couple of uh, etiopathogenesis which uh, lead to rupture of the air sac. Um, and, a, and the other one um, that you've got to distinguish it from is uh, crop crops full of air, aerophasia, um, and once you've distinguished from those, between those, then you can start to think about trying to figure out why the, the, uh, the air sac has ruptured, um, if it's in the neck or around the eye or somewhere else on the body. Sometimes, Brendan, you never find the actual rent in the body wall that allows the air to get into the subcutaneous space. Um, sometimes we find trauma will result in air not reaching the subcutaneous space. Uh, sometimes that air will show up radiographically in locations like behind the kidney or um, in between the muscles of the, the, um, 
the, the pelvis. Uh, so it's not always subcutaneous, and, um, and particularly with those traumatic cases, it can be in some very strange locations. Okay, so before we can treat, yeah, we do need to nut out what particular cause or causes might be happening. So you've mentioned trauma. What are the other, what are the other causes of this condition or conditions well, there really is just two, and we've talked about trauma, and that's a very common one. And it's a when it happens, it's it's good because it's very likely that we're going to be able to control things and get them settled down, and it will heal. Um, less, uh, less, uh, more worrying are the ones that involve infections, and there is a little bit of a pattern in these cases where birds on relatively um, poor diets, those old seed diets that uh, probably have um, uh, problems with the amount of vitamin A, that marginal vitamin A concentration uh, leads to hypovitaminosis A, um, and that deficiency will lead to epithelial dysplasia and plaque formation. And those plaques are often a reason for obstruction of various openings to air sacs and lead to almost like a valve arrangement where the air sacs will um, be open on inspiration and then close on expiration, and that happens a few times, and then the air will start to separate the uh, tear the air sac and separate the muscle fibres that limit it and allow the air to leak out into the the um, subcutaneous space. So diet is a predisposing factor, but infections the probably the most common thing we see are the types of infections that damage air sac walls um, and then lead to accumulations of mucus, which similar to, to the plaques will obstruct the, the uh, openings to those various air sacs and lead to altered pressure. So you may have sort of mentioned it already, but I can't remember whether you did. How, so how quickly does this happen? Does it, does the client ring up and say, my, my bird's blown up like a balloon or is it a slow process over several hours or days or, or both? A bit, a bit of both. It can be a whole range. So we will regularly have birds that literally were pretty normal and then a couple of hours later they're they look like the Michelin man um, or other ones will just have a, a relatively small amount of subcutaneous air. The, the people um, tell us they're a bit confused over the phone, maybe send us a picture and then two or three days later it's blown up to uh, you know, be roughly the same size as the bird. Um, so it, it, the rate I think is, I, you know, I don't think there's published literature on this so this is one of mark's little theories i think that the rate is is determined by the severity of the pathology within the air sac and the health of the bird so muscular birds the muscles often provide the limit the the physical limit to an air sac um, and so if they're flabby old birds who don't do much exercise and are on a poor diet they're much more likely to have those muscles separate the fibers separate and allow the leakage of air where healthier birds that maybe are trained and do uh, free flight exercise um, those birds are less likely to um to allow accumulation of mucus or um, plaques associated with epithelial dysplasia, and, and so they seem to have less problem. So do these, I mean, obviously the, some of the birds with the infectious cause or the um, more prolonged infectious or severe, they'll, they'll come in sick, but do a fair number of these come in apparently well? 
Yes, and that's where the conflict between the sort of, oh, we might have to euthanise this bird and actually uh, what we're able to do is quite different. The birds themselves often look, you know, weird and different and and strange, but they'll often behave relatively normally. Um, there's, there's sometimes some pruritus associated with the separation of the skin from the underlying tissue, so the birds may well scratch at the area. But outside of that, a lot of birds will just behave um, relatively normally. So how do we determine which ones are critical and end up being euthanized and which ones are, you can just take your time with? Well, the ones that uh, that are critical are the ones that are, um, are in stages of dyspnea where they have difficulty breathing. And so the usual things that we look for in birds are the degree of ventilatory excursion, the noises within the air sacs and lungs. The lungs themselves uh, will only get noisy when there's significant exudate in them, um, but the air sacs will give you that uh, that friction rub Um, once they're inflamed Um, and sometimes you can even get uh, a kissing click as the um, surfaces of the inflamed air sacs uh, uh, move against each other and external signs like tail bobbing and open mouth breathing are clues that the the uh, the respiratory signs are much much more urgent and they're the real problem Brendan the once you settle those down then the subcutaneous emphysema tends to resolve itself. Okay. So just give me a rough idea on what percentage of them would be those those extremes, the ones that um, cope really well and, and it resolves with or without treatment, as we'll chat about in a sec, um, and those that, that end up being euthanized or die very quickly. But it's probably 90-10. Um, nine one that one of them are those critical ones that you really need to get into and uh, do some urgent things. Ninety uh, percent of them are going to be the bird that's close to or relatively normal, um, and and does give you some time to uh, make dietary changes and um, consider things um, like the um, you know one of the questions we were discussing was the whole talk of um, of opening. The, you know, draining the air out of the subcutaneous space. Now, obviously, that um, that doesn't, you know, if you don't change the nature of the valve arrangement in the um, in in the end of the air sac, then it's just going to blow back up. But if you can place a stent of some sort or um, allow the air to leak out, then the skin will regularly sit down relatively normally and um, and give the the body a chance to heal the damaged muscle between the air sac and the subcutaneous space and resolve the problem. Okay, so, yeah, well, let's summarise, or you can summarise the the treatment options there, and you've sort of um, gone through a little bit of that already, but, yeah, do you want to summarise your your standard treatment method for these or do you uh, are there some of them you just leave alone there's there's not many the the interesting thing about them is that um once they occur once there's a weakness in the muscles around the air sac then they tend to be self-maintaining so um just simply you know we have some clients that ask if we can send them home with a syringe and a needle and they'll just keep sucking it out um those birds will survive often for a long time. Like I said, 90% of them will cope well, um, but the the 
problem will often, very often, persist and um, and can last for years. Um, most commonly, though, we're pretty aggressive about um, trying to change the diet of the bird if that's a factor. We'll often uh, see if we can get some clue about the nature of an infectious process by um, looking at the the uh, blood count and uh, maybe running a chlamydia. Um, a chlamydia test because chlamydia would be one of the common organisms that cause a problem. If we had signs there was a white cell count elevation um, and the chlamydia test was negative, we might start antibiotics um, other than doxycycline, but we would regularly use doxycycline, obviously, if chlamydia is positive. Um, we may never find the specific location of the leak and it would be nice to find that and maybe surgically close it but generally speaking if you can um, get the the diet changed and treat with antibiotics and anti-inflammatory medications um, then uh, um, then that will over a, the period of a few days to uh, several weeks mean that the valve shuts down and air doesn't enter that subcutaneous space anymore. So what's your recommendation for these potential birds that have that long-term issue where it just keeps recurring or and the owners may be doing the the sort of treatment at home? What, what, what's your recommend? Can you fix those ones once and for all and how do you do that? You definitely can. Um, and it, the, they obviously take a significant uh, amount of additional energy to figure out the exact location of the the tear and then um, surgically closing that down, putting some sutures in the muscle layer where the air is leaking out, um, that can, even in ones that have been ticking over for a few years, that can solve the problem. I've, I've lost you, Brendan. I've lost no, you me. haven't lost me. You, um, I'm thinking uh, I've thunk something and... My question is, what do you reckon the tears are caused by most of these? You've, you've spoken about a few possibilities, the plaques and, and all those sorts of things, but with ones that are potentially straight, just straight trauma causing, do you have a theory, a mark theory on, on the, the common cause of that? Well, I think it's uh, crashing into walls is the theory. Um, it would be a very common uh, history for us to get, um, that in the two or three days before the bird presented with a, um, a subcutaneous emphysema that they had a, a, uh, an awkward fly and crashed into a wall. And definitely we've had uh, one of the sort of atypical cases that we had um, was a bird that we radiographed and had uh, fractured ribs um, and that led to subcutaneous emphysema on the lateral chest wall. So, um, so I think that those ones that are not infectious, there is often a history of... Um, of uh, a, a crash that people can relate to us. I think it's one of the reasons that, um, you know, there's many reasons that I'm an advocate for birds to uh, fly free, that I like them, you know, I think it's healthy for birds to fly. And if we have pet birds, I think it behooves us to, um, to try and set them up in such a way that they're safe. Um, and that's the main reason most people clip their wings to try and keep them safe so they don't fly away and become, uh, you know, one of those YouTube videos where a bird of prey pounces on them as they uh, get 100 feet or so away from their owner. Um, but I think if birds um, can safely fly around the house and they're experienced 
um, uh, pilots, um, they it's a massive improvement to their health. Um, and obviously, if they're familiar, they're not going to have these crashes that, that, that might cause the traumatic class of subcutaneous emphysema. Okay. So one other thing you, you wanted to comment on is the potential use of novel treatment methods. And, and the one in particular that, that you had on the list there, Mark, is using stents. Do you want to chat about that? Well, I, it is a technique that we've used because people get very upset about the appearance. We will often, um, as I said, uh, aspirate the air out from underneath the the um, skin so that the skin sits down. But obviously, if we just use a needle, the skin seals over in a day and the thing blows back up. Um, and it can be... And, and obviously the birds I mentioned, some of them scratch at and pick at the, the skin that's irritated as it's lifted off. So if we... Um, there are reports in the literature of using... Um, uh, radiosurgical techniques to create a hole in the skin so that um, and radiosurgical techniques will obviously burn the edge of the skin and the skin will heal more slowly. Um, but there is uh, a number of uh, publications where we place stents in the skin to uh, provide routine drainage for that air that um, is entering that space. And I noticed um, in the UPAV conference last year there was a wonderful um, discussion about the use of stents, uh, particularly those um, ear spaces um, that are used for um, uh, people that are doing, you know, body piercing or whatever with their ears. But um, that, those spaces we are, we are now using in rabbits to prevent the skin from healing over abscesses too quickly and locking in the infection and um and i think some of the very smaller spaces uh obviously on you wouldn't want to do it on a, a really small bird but some of the um cockatiel sized birds up to cockatoos you could use some of those spaces to um make sure that the skin didn't heal over and uh, and allow the process to begin again yes so i look forward to a little paper or presentation on that, Mark, at um, one of our upcoming conferences of you and the use of all these stents. Um, you need to pull them out of your ear and um, put them in the birds, Mark. And that, that presentation was quite quirky and, and fascinating, wasn't it? That was by one of our exotic pet veterinarians, Tegan, um, at our recent conference in Melbourne here in Australia. So, yeah, I, I love those sorts of presentations where somebody just thinks a little bit laterally and um, works out a solution, nuts out a solution to a problem, Mark. And, um, gee, I wish I could do that. Um, yes, <laughs> I wish I could do that. Well, are there any sort of closing comments or words, Mark, you want to say about air sac ruptures in our little avian friends? Um, the only other thing I was going to quickly mention was just to be aware that I have had a couple of patients. One was a, um, a, a, a couple of were eclectus parrots, so I don't know whether this is a, 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 um, a particular 
um, species predilection, but I've had a, um, half a dozen birds or so that have had tumours that have um, penetrated the body wall and then subcutaneous emphysema is the, the result of um, that breach between the air sac and the subcutaneous space. So um, while the vast majority of them are going to resolve um, either with relatively simple uh, trauma treatment or um, treating the infection and dietary-related problems, just keep in mind that occasionally there will be more sinister causes, Brendan. Interesting. So, well, the, my practical comment or, or thought is, Mark, Mark what, what, what would your standard, your standard approach to a bird that comes in with this condition, what, what workup do you do on them? We radiograph them. But you, I take your question, um, like it's quite a good question because you and I often talk about the um, – you know, the, the gold standard, but oftentimes um, while both of us aspire to do that, there are numerous times where we've just got to uh, treat these cases on spec. We have got to sort of have a bit of a standard operating procedure. And for many of these birds, we will just uh, talk about changing the diet, treat them with anti-inflammatories um, and consider maybe antibiotics if there's signs. Um, but it would be great if we could get those uh, radiographic images because they help to alert us to um, unusual locations, uh, gas in unusual locations that might not be the cephalic air sac. Yes, and fi finally, how many of them would you run bloods as a standard on them as well? Well, we always try to um, uh, run a smear um, because I think that um, that white cell count is probably a more useful diagnostic than most of the biochemistry in the first instance but we'd probably um, do that um, on uh, every time we would knock one out to take a radiograph we'd get a drop of blood and do a smear excellent well done well i think you've solved well mr Intr mr outro man's here so i better go um thanks for listening we'll talk to you all next week thanks for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.